You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. But let's uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with the 15th verse, and let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that the truths that it imparts to us today would take deep root into our hearts, that we really would know you, God, uh, know you personally, know you intimately, and that uh, you would uh, call us your own. In Jesus' name, amen. I do think it's important that when we are studying God's Word or when we're listening to a sermon to actually have the Bible open. And that's not just an act of show of piety to say, look at me, I'm the Christian that's carrying the, the Bible that's so big you could ward off a mugger. Uh, but in fact, what we're saying is that not only do we expect the preacher to preach exegetically, that is preaching from the Word of God, preaching the Word of God to the people, but we want you to listen exegetically. And what that means is that you can listen and look at the Bible and say, ah, yes, that is exactly what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15 is saying. And listening exegetically is just as important as uh, preaching exegetically. And so, if you are listening to a sermon where you really don't need this, it may not be a sermon worth listening to. But of course, here we are uh, getting into the meat of it uh, because we have, well, except for this morning because we've sort of been curtailed, but, um, but looking at Ephesians chapter 1, so this is page 976 uh, in the leather-bound Advent Bibles that many of you have, Ephesians 1 beginning with the 15th verse. And I'm going to go ahead and read all the way through to uh, chapter 2. We'll see how far we get. It's my hope that we get up to chapter 2, and then Palm Sunday, uh, next Sunday, we'll pick back up where we've left off. And also you should know that even though I think it's been important for me to be preaching uh, during this time of quarantine, we're going to begin incorporating other preachers. So Palm Sunday, Mark Genelette will preach. Mike Weeks will preach Monday, Thursday, I'll preach Good Friday and Easter, and then we'll kind of go from there. But stay tuned to our website for our schedules and knowing uh, when the dean's class will meet and who will be teaching or preaching what. And of course, if you do miss something, you can always go back and listen to it or watch it uh, in, um, when you're just wanting a little bit more. Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read verse 15 on. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in all the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward, toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He has put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body." the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, for this reason, uh, he's talking about 
the electing work of God the Father, the redeeming work of God the Son, and the sealing and the uh, indwelling work of the, whole, of the Holy Spirit, which we've been talking about in the weeks leading up to this one. And it's this faith in the Lord Jesus and their love which causes him to give thanks and to pray. Up to this point, Paul has been really singing a hymn. Uh, you could easily set uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 to music. In fact, there are little refrains that, that Paul uses pra- to the praise of his glory. And the way that he goes about writing this is, of course, yes, inspired, but it's lyrical and it's musical in a way that some of Scripture is not. And he goes from singing now to praying. And he's giving thanks for their deep and abiding faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Not just toward one another, but to all the saints, to all who name the name Christian. Love is the defining characteristic of a Christian. That's what it says in the book of Acts, that the world was provoked to jealousy because they looked at the Christians and said, see how they love one another. And so our fellowship ought to be marked by love, but also in how we respond to others, not just to the saints, but to the world at large. This quarantine has given me a lot of perspective on what it means to love someone. How do you love someone when you're not able to go visit them? when you're not able to see them, when you're not able to physically interact with them. Now, we've been able to do that with our loved ones who are living far away that we normally don't see anyway, but the fact that you know that you can't see them, that even if you were to travel to that faraway place, causes a grief in me that is normally not there that there's this wall that has been put up that I can't cross. And so already they feel far away, but now they feel farther away than they ever have. And what about the people that you take for granted, that you see day in and day out in your workplaces? Or more specifically, getting to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 1, the people that you see on Sunday mornings here at the Advent. Do we love one another? Do we feel loved by one another? And I want to be careful about how I use feeling language, uh, because sometimes we can say we feel unloved when, in fact, we are being loved. But that's the difficulty of love. Jesus says it this way, that the love one another as you want to be loved. Now, that's called the golden rule. And actually, that rule has its limitations. That is, If we loved one another as we want to be loved, the world would be a better place. But what if the person you're trying to love doesn't receive love the way that you give it? If you're married, you understand this plainly. Because the way that you might want to love your husband or your wife may not be the way that they can receive love. And so that's why Jesus gives us the platinum rule. Greater love hath no one than this, that they would be willing to lay their lives down for another. 
And so our love is a self-sacrificing love that I'm actually willing to give up my own prerogatives and even my rights in order for the other believer to be loved and to be cared for. And when you're in a big church like the Advent, it's sometimes very difficult to feel loved and, and to figure out how we might love one another. And what we see in Ephesians 1 is that it's the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love toward all the saints that causes Him to pray for them. So in the first instance, it's a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you're only going to be able to reach an, a level of intimacy with another individual if they know Jesus too. But if you're in a friendship or a relationship in which one of the people in the relationship is not a believer, it means that there's a sort of glass ceiling in the relationship that can never get beyond it. You can't know the full depth of love apart from Jesus Christ. There's a governor on the relationship that keeps it from going deeper. And so that love is going to be limited. And we feel it acutely, especially if you're talking to a dear friend who's not a Christian believer, but you are. And there's a sense of, well, there's a lack of understanding. They don't really get what you're going through. And they can't apply the necessary remedy of the gospel to you because they're wholly unaware of it. It doesn't even factor into their, their minds or into their lives. And so in order for us to really love one another as Jesus has loved us, is for us to have a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's more than just naming it. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. What kind of Christian are we talking about, especially as we live in Birmingham, Alabama? It's a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where He is at the center of your life and He is your all in all. And as a result of Him taking charge of your life, He's taken your heart and He's completely transformed it. He's taken your mind and completely transformed it. So all of a sudden now, you actually have a desire to love people that you may not have before you were a Christian. In fact, you find yourself loving people who are frankly unlovable. You find yourself loving people without any sense of reciprocation or demand of reciprocation. But you simply are willing to pour out your life for the sake of the other person. And so if somebody says, yeah, I'm a Christian and I think Jesus is just a fine moral teacher... Or if someone even says, you know what, we just got to love one another and that's all there is to it, they have missed the boat. Their Christianity is about that deep. They've misunderstood the gospel and therefore they've missed Christianity altogether. Because this love is not just an act or a feeling, it's rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You won't know love until you know the depth of your sinfulness and what the Lord Jesus Christ had to go through in order to ransom you from sin and death upon the cross. That's love. And so a Christianity divorced from Jesus, a Christianity divorced from His cross and resurrection is no Christianity at all. 
And so how do we love one another? We have a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, I don't cease to give thanks. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. We love one another by praying for one another. I found that one of the most productive things for me to do is that when I find it particularly hard to love someone who is a brother or a sister, and sometimes for very good reasons, and right now some of y'all are cooped up with those people in your own homes. I mean, right now, many of you, I I am praying that, that you don't get coronavirus, but I'm also praying mightily for your marriages, and I'm not saying that as a joke. Uh, it's, it's very real. Many people who normally go through this sort of feeling that they go through when they retire, where all of a sudden they're placed in front of their husbands or wives, wives, we're getting a little bit of a taste of it now, of what it actually means to live life together. And we live day in and day out uh, with uh, our husbands, wives, children, roommates, whoever it may be, uh, but people on Sundays, we have the luxury of really only seeing them one day a week. And so we allow ourselves to harbor bitterness and ill will towards them and think nothing of it. And the Advent's a big place, so we can just simply avoid them. But I find that when I pray for those who are particularly hard to love, that not only am I asking God to work in their lives, by my prayers, God is working on me by a Spirit. That God Himself is actually shaping my heart, and I begin to love those who maybe don't love me very much. And that's one of the things that Paul is encouraging us to do. A common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, praying for one another. These things demonstrate love to one another. But one of the other things that Paul is saying here is he's articulating all of this aloud to the Ephesians. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you. He's actually speaking a word of encouragement to them. Isn't it nice when someone says that? Hey, I want you to know that when you did this for me, it meant a whole lot. Or I simply want to commend you for for what you said uh, the other day uh, in a meeting that really uh, gave me a right perspective on things. So often those sort of compliments or encouragements or exhortations go completely unsaid, and Paul here is demonstrating to us that we ought to be speaking those things to one another in our own lives. And so when you see one another on Sunday, rather than say, well, you can't say this anymore, you can't say, how about them braves? And at this, this point, who knows whether there'll be football in the fall. Perish the thought. So basically, the only thing that y'all are going to be able to talk about is Jesus. And so, get used to it. But when, you, when you're with one another on Sunday mornings, what does your conversation look like? Are you speaking one-on-one, God's Word to one another, asking people, hey, how can I pray for you while you're in Klingman Commons or getting a cup of coffee? I think that you're already being encouraged to do this by circumstance because haven't you found yourself texting, calling, or whatever people that you may not have even spoken to in years? 
and you have a ready-made, built-in excuse as to why it's okay for you to call, and it's not weird. Your heart begins to take hold of the things that really matter. And so you begin to reach out to people and talk about things that really matter. And I hope that after coronavirus, that doesn't go away, but that you hold tightly to that. And when you see one another here on Sunday morning, that you encourage one another on, that you pray for one another, and that you build one another up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, all of this love is moving towards something. In verse 17, Paul writes that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So what's Paul's prayer? Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would know God. Now, you'd be right to ask, but hasn't he already been saying that? Don't the it's clear that the Ephesians know who God is and what He's done for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is still praying that they would know, really, uh, the Greek might be better rendered, that they might know God better that they would grow deeper in their understanding of who Jesus Christ is and who they are in Him. Now, the reason this is so important is that we often settle for something less. Some of us are willing to settle for very little knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're very content to say, you know what, I know that Jesus died for me, and I'm fine to go go to heaven ignorantly. That's all I really need to know. No, of course, that's of supreme and vital importance that you know that Jesus Christ has died for you. But that's not what Paul is simply, he's not stopping there. Paul is saying, I've already said that. I've already said you've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? I want you to really know God. Now, some people would say, well, I know a lot about the Bible. Now, that's very few Episcopalians. And, of course, Bible knowledge is good, because the Bible is God's Word and there's no knowledge of God apart from it. But although we must know Scripture, this in itself is not the fullness of what God has for us. And even other Christians would settle for knowledge simply about God. They sort of like theology. They like to do the theologizing or go on a theodicy about God. They can talk about God's attributes But it's possible to know a whole lot about God with actually knowing God at all. J.I. Packer, in his great book, Knowing God, spends the entire book on this. How do we know God? What does it mean to know God? Well, Packer suggests the following three elements. First... Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. 
It's a matter of dealing with Him as He opens up to you and being dealt with by Him as He takes knowledge of you. So you have to interact personally with God. You have to know Him personally, which Paul has spent all this time in chapter 1 talking about. How do you know God personally? How do you know Him intimately? Second, Packer says, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement in mind, will, and feeling. The believer rejoices when his God is honored and vindicated and feels the acutest distress when he sees God flouted. This is what happens in an intimate relationship. When you're very close to somebody, one of the most obvious ways this happens is, is there a family member or a friend that you have that you're incredibly close to? And when someone starts to speak poorly about them, all of a sudden you get your back up. Now, in my case, I normally think that may be true, but only I can talk about them that way, not you. But in the same way, do you have such intimacy with God? Do you have a personal involvement with Him that the things that grieve God's heart grieve your heart and the things that rejoice God's heart rejoice your heart as well? that you're, you are so wrapped up in God and you find you're all in Him that when God is blasphemed, to use a big Bible word, or when God is rejected, you take it personally. I, I hate to admit it, but there's a television show that I recommended someone watch an episode of recently, and uh, I went home and uh, started to watch it again and immediately texted the friend and said, don't do it. It's way too offensive. You have a heightened sensitivity of the things of God when you're in a personal relationship with Him because you have a personal involvement with Him. Thirdly, knowing God, Packer says, is a matter of grace It's a relationship in which the initiative throughout is with God, as it must be, since God is so completely above us and we have so completely forfeited all claim on His favor by our sins. That God's relationship to to us, as Paul Zoll, a former dean, would say, is a one-way relationship with God. That His grace and His mercy is one way, (coughs) excuse me, and we're simply recipients of it, that God does His work upon us by His grace. That being the case, Packer concludes, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that God knows me. That's the central fact of knowing God. Not that you know Him, but that He knows you. And this is exactly what Paul is praying for amongst the Ephesians, upon whom God has set His love upon upon and elected to know them savingly. 
And that's what I often pray for you. That's what I pray for myself, that really we would know God. Uh, James Boyce, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for a very long time, was once asked by a post-college group, what did they think that the what did he think that the, the most pressing need for the church was today? And uh, Boyce uh, writes uh, writes this. In an earlier period of my ministry, I might have said, quote, to be faithful to the teachings of Scripture, to show love for one another, or some such thing. But in this case, I replied, I think that the greatest need of the evangelical church today is for professing Christians really to know God. If you want to find yourself more loving, if you want to find yourself uh, changed, if you want to find yourself walking in intimacy with God, the answer is knowing Him, of living your life in Him, of being completely absorbed by Him. Now, I know that at some level I'm speaking aspirationally, but so is Paul. If these things were already completely true of us, he wouldn't be praying them, would he? But we would pray that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. That's what we would pray. Now, we're getting on on time, but I would say that following on, uh, Paul uh, also gives us uh, an inkling as how this happens, which piggybacks nicely on my sermon this morning. Then in verse 20, he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, he's not mentioning it specifically, but he's alluding to the Holy Spirit, that if Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and he's reigning, how do we know Jesus in our hearts? How do we know his presence? How do we get filled to the fullness of him who fills all in all? It's by his indwelling Holy Spirit. It's by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we actually come to know who God is and what it means to have our life in Him. He's our helper. He's the one that comes and ministers to us. That's the promise, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. And so Paul prays for the church there in Ephesus. He prays that their church and fellowship would be marked out by love that is rooted in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and rooted in prayer and how they interact with one another as they gather together, that they really would know what it means not just to be a community but a family. Do you see one another as a family? Or do you say things like, I go to church with them? Now, I probably understand this a little bit better than y'all do. My mother is one of five children. Her mother is one of ten. 
Her father's one of 14, and my stepfather who raised us was the youngest of 10. I had a lot of family running around me. And you would think uh, from an outside perspective, when Lauren and I got married, she articulated this, and she said, how can you possibly know who that is? I mean, just on my mother's side, when it came to my maternal great-grandmother, I was one when she died, she had 72 great-grandchildren and 54 grandchildren. It's a lot of birthday cards. And yet, I knew them all because they were my family. And so, yes, the Advent is a big place, but it's still there's this desire and this understanding that that's my brother, that's my sister, not somebody that I just randomly, randomly show up uh, and see at church, almost as if our gathering together is, is just happenstance that we run into those people. But actually, our gathering together and who's in this room is providential that God has given them to you as your family, and you've been given to them as your family. And as God's family, Paul is saying, I really want you to know God. I want you to know who He is, as He is, and who He is for you and to you. I want you to know Him personally. That is the great prayer of Paul not just for the church in Ephesus, but for His people here in Birmingham, Alabama that we call the Advent. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that You would make us a people marked out by love, that we'd be driven to our knees to pray for one another and that people might look at us and be provoked to jealousy, see how those Adventers love one another. And Lord, that You would change our hearts as we pray to love those that are very difficult to love and may even reject and, and and resent the love that we might try to show them. And Lord, this love wouldn't be artificial, but would be love that comes from you. And Lord, the only way that we can do that is if we know your son, Jesus, and that his spirit dwells within our hearts. And so, Lord, that we really would know you and that we would do this all to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.